Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. This on. Hello. We're all science people. Science. Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. So, if you want to be on the show, and I hope a few of you do, please go to AskBillNye.com and type on in. I want to hear what's on your mind. I want you to call me, and we'll talk about science and its, and its rules. And once again, I am joined, of course, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. Bill, how are you, man? You know, to me, you are a beacon of sanity in this mixed-up world of ours. Really? Uh, yeah, I mean, on the whole. I mean, I'm grading on a curve here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good thing, because today we are joined by Ariel Baskin-Sommers. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Yale University in Ooh. New Haven, Connecticut, and she specializes in antisocial behavior. Something that seems to be on everyone's mind these days. Greetings, Ariel. Thank you for coming and being on Science Rules. Thank you so much for having me. All right. If I understand this. Yes. You, we, study psychopaths, uh, troubling people. Yes. How do, how do we get involved in such a thing? Well, it was a little bit by accident. So when I was in graduate school, one of my advisors studied psychopaths. And okay, he, graduate school for what? For clinical psychology. Yeah, voila. I have two parents who are sociologists. They studied drugs and crime. And so that was our normal dinner conversation. It's what Thanksgiving discussions were about. So this was kind of a day-to-day -day infusion of the topic for me. And so as I went through school, I became more and more interested in the idea of how people think who engage in chronic antisocial behavior. What's chronic antisocial behavior? You know, here in New York City. Yes. <laughs> so most of us actually engage in antisocial behavior, and it is totally normal for people to commit crimes in their lifetime, particularly during adolescence. But most of us desist or stop or slow down our criminal activity through life. We desist. Yes. What a fabulous, uh, happy clinical term. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's do some desisting today, shall we? So when you say it's normal, 
Are there statistics on that? The majority of adolescents will engage in some sort of antisocial or criminal behavior, anything from truancy to trying substances under the age or illicit substances, and even crimes that we would consider pretty serious, but for adolescents are not necessarily considered as serious, like petty theft. Stealing a car, that's big theft. That's more serious. Stealing lifesavers from a pharmacy, uh, drugstore, okay. And so these behaviors are important learning tools for us developing, and most of us learn and respond to the punishment we receive when we get caught or when we associate with a different set of peers, we learn to engage in a different type of way, something that might be considered more pro-social. But a subset of people continue on that path. They continue to engage in antisocial and criminal behavior, continuing beyond adolescence into adulthood. And so those are the people I'm most interested in. I'm not interested in the normal boring criminals. I'm interested in the chronic criminals. But you came in here anyway. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, So hang on. That's a hilarious comedy joke, everyone. Now, (laughs) I'm a civilian outsider, not a professional psychiatrist, psychologist, What's the difference between sociopathic behavior and psychopathic behavior? So the behaviors themselves are the same, particularly the focus on engaging in antisocial behavior, being impulsive, showing a lack of emotions and empathy, and being very charming and manipulative. The distinction between a sociopath and psychopath is basically the etiology or the cause, the reason someone is displaying that behavior. It's believed that psychopaths are basically born that way. There's some genetic abnormality and neurodevelopment that happens early in life that shapes their brain and their experiences in a way that promotes that behavior. Whereas a sociopath is believed to basically be environmentally bred. Early parenting experiences, early child maltreatment, other experiences, it becomes an adaptive way to deal with potentially traumatic and problematic interactions in childhood. Whoa, whoa, whoa. If I may, whoa. So can I look at an infant? Okay, give me another number, a five-year-old, and tell whether or not he or she is antisocial. Yes. So there are both clinical and observational tests that allow us to assess traits related to antisocial behavior. So early in childhood, we could diagnose what's called conduct disorder. Um, This is a disorder where kids are showing chronic engagement in criminal activity, lying, aggressiveness, violation of parental (coughs) rules. And a subset of those kids, about 32% of them, also have what's called callous and unemotional traits. 32%, not 31. 32. Uh, 32. (laughs) All right, so hang on. You go to prisons. Yes, spend a lot of time in prison. Chatted, <laughs> chatted up with sociopathic people or a rather psychopathic people. Well, we wouldn't know until we do the testing. What's in the test? So the first way we do our research is through a life history interview. Can it be done through a podcast? Probably. So if you're out there, <laughs> send, check in, will you? Yeah. So, okay, 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 doctor, go ahead. So. so we do this life history interview that's based on Robert Hare's psychopathy checklist. When did he start this? In the early 90s, and this came out of work and observations by Hare Vey Cleckley, which 
existed in 1940s. So this is, this is a test that keeps getting updated as you learn more about, about the social behaviors? Yes, this is an interview where we essentially ask people about their education background, of course their criminal behavior. We ask them to describe their relationships, their work history, how they think about things, their beliefs about people. And then we take all, everything they tell us and score them on 20 items. And those 20 items represent different characteristics associated with psychopathy. So do they show, for example, a lack of depth in their emotional expression? Do they see people as basically pawns in their game and they use charm and manipulation to get them to do things? Um, do they engage in impulsive behavior, doing things without thinking? Are they antisocial, committing lots of types of crimes, not just committing a lot of crimes? And do they do that starting at a very early age? So there's people that steal this, break that, sneak into their... And these are all different types of crimes. That's right. And psychopaths. Do them all. They do them all. They're what we call criminally versatile. They're kind of the Jack and Jill of all trades when it comes to crime. So I want to understand this, the, the charm aspect. Are they charming because they understand how to manipulate people to get what they want? And then we on the other side interpret that as, oh, he's so attentive to me. He's, uh, you know, seems like so nice, so, uh, you know, so outgoing. Is that what you mean by charm? Yeah, they're they're good at giving compliments. They're good at identifying um, how to get what they want. They're good at using lies to get what they want. They're not necessarily better liars. They just do it more frequently. So since the base rate is so much higher, basically you're going to be bound to have more hits, essentially. You're lying base rate, Corey. Yeah. <laughs> People who are not psychopathic will update their behavior when there is a consequence for that lie, when they get caught, when um, it leads to a problem with someone they love or they interact with. And this is what psychopaths don't do. So they lie. And if there's a consequence, like getting caught by the police, if their parent or loved one is angry with them, that will not change their behavior moving forward. And this is the fascinating thing about psychopaths is that they know what they're doing in the moment and they can recognize that there might be a consequence, but they don't use any of that information to inform future behavior or to update their behavior moving forward. So it's almost like each thing they do is in isolation. There's no clear connection between the sequence of their behavior. All right. I got some more questions, but Corey. Not only do you have questions, but there's an entire world of people out there a with world questions, of including people. we have Ashley White, a caller on the line. Who has a question for you? Ashley, uh, where are you calling from and what's your question? Hi, I'm calling from Michigan. And why are personality disorders not adequately treated in America? I think that they're just as disruptive in people's lives as mental health disorders. But then the treatment discussion is just not happening. Yeah, so personality disorders are a complex set of disorders that we usually distinguish from other mental health issues like depression, PTSD, or anxiety disorders. You're talking about bipolar? Bipolar disorder would be considered a mood disorder. That's not a personality disorder. Oh, ha, ha. Uh, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, these are d personality disorders that um, are disorders that lead to 
pervasive changes in someone's behavior and personality. And it's something that's considered more trait-like or stable, whereas a mood disorder or even um, something like anxiety can come and go more. It's more state-like. And so personality disorders typically are not considered a form of serious mental illness in the eyes of the law. And so this is one way, at least within the criminal justice system, that it's led to difficulty um, assigning appropriate treatments because it's rarely then considered a form um, of a mental health issue that could be used for uh, mitigating circumstances or competency hearings. Okay, you used a couple words there. You said a state disorder, and did you say stable? Trait. A trait and a state. Yeah. Okay, which is which? So personality disorders are considered stable traits. Mm -hmm. So they are more... Always there. Always there. That's just the way you are. And so it can't be treated as, oh, this is a transient thing, and so it has to be taken into consideration. That's right. And then a state disorder would be something where you might come and go out of that state. So you might be depressed for a few weeks or months, and then you'll have a period without an experience Mm -hmm. of depression. So... To go back to the question, one reason why personality disorders are kind of considered um, more difficult to treat in the eyes of the law is that they're not um, used in stages of the legal proceedings that these other disorders are. So they're not considered for competency hearings, whether you um, committed the you know, had the wherewithal to commit the crime or not. They're not typically used in terms of mitigating circumstances to reduce the sentence. So so to Ashley's point, why is one being treated and not the other? Because it's just hard. Right. So so coming back to then the treatment, I won't I don't think it's totally accurate to say that they're not being treated versus the other, because there are some actually very successful treatments that are used in the community as well as in um prison and jail facilities that are extremely successful, and that's for borderline personality disorder. So this is a disorder that is associated with highs and lows in terms of emotional expression. This um, shifts quite a bit moment to moment. Your mood and your emotion might change. You engage in more impulsive behavior. You tend to have a lot of black and white thinking about, I love this person, I hate this person. And so this (laughs) disorder is actually very successfully treated with what's called dialectical behavior therapy. And this was started by Marsha Linehan. Helps people manage their emotions, helps people communicate in a more effective way, and helps people um, so what, what is deal that? with their distress. So what does dialectical mean in this usage? Basically, it means that you have a balance between two sides of the coin. So in dialectical behavior therapy, you have an emotion mind. These are things that drive reacting strongly to information. And you have what's called a rational mind. This is logic. And what we want is to bring someone to a wise mind, a combination between the emotion and the logic. And so the dialectic is that both things could be true. You could be emotional and you can be logical, and we need to find a balance with those too. So what I've seen in my personal life is that if they don't have the right diagnosis, it can be really difficult to get treatment secured for. Yeah. What is your background that you're, what's, what's, what's making you ask these questions? One cannot help but wonder. Um, well, I, I worked with a program in Michigan for 10 years that worked with people coming out of prison uh, to get reacclimated back to society. And why did you do that, and what happened? Oh, uh, I I did it kind of coming out of college. Um, I was really interested in the population, and 
trying to change how we view people with these issues um, in society. I don't do it now, but it it still yeah tugs on my heartstrings. So, uh, do you have an opinion about so, changes we could make to the prison system or something like that? Um, I I do have opinions, which are correct. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but just from my experience, I don't know that everyone gets uh, the treatment that they need uh, in the criminal justice system. Well, it's a hard and thing, it would right? Be, this it, is, it really is. Um, so I believe if I got your question right or your comment, well, one thing we have difficulty with, particularly within the criminal justice system, is accurately diagnosing people. And that then impedes our ability to um, assign people to the most appropriate treatments. Is that the the idea? Yeah, there's some, there's there's definitely that. But I also think that we struggle in society with adequate treatment uh, you know, before they go into the criminal justice system and even when they come out again. Yeah, so let me tackle kind of the two points separately, if I can. So the first point about accurate diagnosis is 100% correct. <coughs> One of the biggest issues that we have with personality disorders in general, but particularly ones that find themselves more frequently in the criminal justice system, is that the behaviors <coughs> look really similar. And even some of the diagnostic criteria are similar, but the causes are quite different. So antisocial personality disorder. This is a disorder that is associated with repeated violations of social norms, engaging in criminal behavior, things like lying, things like impulsivity, is diagnostically different than psychopathy. And one, wow, of, really? one of the things that TV shows do very poorly is confuse the two of them. I teach a class called The Criminal Mind, and I tell my students, if they learn nothing else, this is the one thing I want them to learn. So I want them to help, yell at the TV with help, me. Help, yeah, help, yes. help me understand. You clarify the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So <clears throat> what psychopathy is, is the same impulsive and antisocial behavior that we saw, see in antisocial personality disorder, but... Individuals with psychopathy also have these interpersonal and emotional characteristics, the charm, the lack of emotion, lack of empathy, the, the um, callousness and conning in their behavior. Callousness and conning, getting other people to do stuff. Yes. Yeah, let me just, uh, for the listeners, something's been throwing me off, and I know you're hip, uh, <laughs> and I, I got to get used to it. You say psychopathy. Yes. If you saw it in print, it would... It looks like psycho... Pathology. Yeah. And so psychopathy is a psychopath. Yes. The, uh, the condition of being a psychopath. Yes. And psychopathology so, is just general mental health Yeah. Condition. But it's a cool sounding word. But if you're not used to it, it threw me off a couple times. So so go ahead. Uh the causes are yes. different, even though the behavior is the same. That's right. And this is one of the really confusing things, because both types of diagnoses are characterized by chronic substance use, chronic antisocial behavior, impulsivity, all of those things. But for psychopaths, the reason they do these things is related to their myopic focus on their goal, their um, lack of influence by emotional information in their behavior. Whereas people with antisocial personality disorder tend to be over-emotional. They tend to have difficulty inhibiting their behavior. So in terms of emotions, they actually have opposite dysfunctions. People with antisocial personality disorder overreact to rewards like money or to threats and emotions. 
whereas people with psychopathy um, actually would underreact to that information. Wow. And so this, you, I can imagine. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say. In oh, terms I'm of sorry. Tre- I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, in terms of treatment, this has led to a huge problem because both of these individuals are assigned to the same types of treatments, except the things that are causing their behaviors are really different. And we have some really cool data from our lab that shows if you give an incorrect treatment to one of these individuals, you actually run the risk of making them worse. Amplify. So, Bill, Ashley has taken us on quite the journey. Yes. Here. <laughs> so, <laughs> Ashley, thank you for your call. Thank you indeed. Yes. You have started us down a thank fabulous road. Thank you so much road. for your time. Oh, thank you. Turn it up loud. Stick around for more Science Rules after this. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Science Rules is back. You watch a lot of crime television. I do. I hear you were on a crime show. Yeah, well, yeah. On Blind Spot. <laughs> this is what I heard. And I'll be back. Really? Yes, yeah, very excited. I, I feel like I also saw you on America's Most Wanted, but that's a whole other That issue. was a different, I had a wig. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, but you watch a lot of crime television. I do. Why do you do that? Well, I watch it for a few reasons. The easy reason is that I find the topic fascinating. I mean, this is part of why I went into this line of research. I find it really interesting to understand human behavior and to think about the ways in which someone is doing something that we would perceive as potentially evil or problematic and how I might see myself doing a similar type of thing or why I wouldn't. The not so kind of eloquent answer is, because then I could use it as a tax deduction because <laughs> my TV bill then is something that I can record um, clips That's not, for. It can't be a huge deduction. You know, anything helps in this, in this um, for class. So I use a lot of, of TV clips in, in my class. People are fascinated with serial killers yes. or uh, people who get away with it, I yep. guess. And uh, since I was a kid, we used to have Perry Mason, who the, the attorney outwitness, outwits the district attorney every week. Uh, there's always a crime show on. There's always a lawyer show on. There's countless detective shows. Yep. Why are we fascinated? Is this part of what you study? Why are we fascinated with all this? You know, I think it's a way for us to understand behaviors that we might think about but never would do. I think we inherently are interested in the mystery of things. Yeah, we've always had whodunits, right? right? And then you, the viewer or the reader, have to try to figure out who did it. And it's almost always related to a motive, right? A reason that somebody would do it. 
And so do psychopaths have a reason beyond just force of habit, just your base rate lying? Psychopaths are incredibly motivated by whatever is their self-serving need or goal at the time. So we've done a lot of research in our lab and others to show that psychopaths are exceptionally capable at focusing on their goal. So if their goal in the moment is to get money or to get out of trouble, they will be able to focus on that immediate goal much better than the rest of us. And they do it so much so that they actually ignore other information that's around them. So, for example, if they really want to... um, Actually, this is the best example that I can give. Bring it on. Bring it on, Ariel. It's a real person who people in New York might know about because you pass his family's buildings all the time, Robert Durst. Um, Robert Durst. So the Durst family is a big real estate family in New York. And I've never met him, so I can't say whether he is a psychopath or not. I'm just using his behavior as an example. Just an example, everybody. (laughs) Behavior-based yeah. Have not met him, have not looked him in the mm-hmm. eye, you've not had him take your question or fill out your questionnaire. That's right. But there was an outstanding HBO documentary called The Jinx. During this documentary, we begin to find out that Robert Durst is on the run from the police for potentially killing his landlord, Morris Black. That would seem like a, an antisocial thing. Yeah, that's not not usually pro-social or positive. Killing a guy, let alone your landlord. Exactly. We all might have an instinct to do this or want a desire to do this at a time, but most of us won't. So Robert Durst is on the run. He's crossed state lines, so beyond the murder thing, he's definitely racking up the federal charges. Um, And he stops at a Wegmans. And Wegmans has a lot of food. For people who don't live in the Northeast and North America, uh, Wegmans is a big— It's a big gourmet supermarket. Well, it's a department store that has everything. Everything. You want lawn chairs in the summer. You want snow shovels in the winter. You want all kinds of prepared food. It's big. It goes over the curvature of the earth. Exactly. And so Robert Durst is on the run. He walks into a Wegmans. He sees a hoagie, and he steals it. Now, Wegmans hoagies are outstanding. They're outstanding hoagies. But if I was on the run from the police, I probably would not think to do any sort of theft in the middle of a Wegmans. Especially where there's security cameras everywhere. Exactly. So to add to it, he also has $800 in his pocket and something like over $50,000 in his car that's in the parking lot. So he could afford a hoagie. Exactly. He could have invested hoagie-wise. Exactly. And so the question that was raised in the documentary is what would compel someone with $800 in his pocket and $50,000 in the car to steal a hoagie from Wegmans? And that particular behavior is exactly what I'm talking about with psychopaths. All he might have wanted in that moment was the hoagie. He didn't think about the consequences. He didn't think about the potential for getting caught. He didn't even think about other ways to pay for it. He just really wanted it and so took it. And that's what psychopaths do really well. And you can see situations like this where it might have problematic effects like getting caught by the police, going to prison, all of those things. But there are other scenarios where focusing on your goal and ignoring additional information can be really beneficial. So when you're sitting down and taking a test, most of us feel anxious. But if I didn't notice my anxiety or feel it at all, that might not um, force me to feel as distressed. And psychopaths then wouldn't feel that. Wow. Wow. Because so, that's clear cut. Yeah. Just steals a hoagie. Yes. Now. And Bill, I have somebody here. I, we've gone down a road, but we're going to go a little further down this road. <laughs> Brayden, are you there? 
Uh, yeah. Where are you calling from, and what is your question, Braden? Thank you for taking the time. Uh, I'm calling from Sam Houston State University. Um, so Where is that? I have always heard that uh, Texas, Huntsville, Texas. There we go. Yeah, it's about a block from the Walls Unit, which is where they do like the. Is it the the penalty? Yeah, they do the death penalty in Texas, but a block from my campus. Wow. All right, lead on. It's intense. So uh, I've always heard that IQ plays a huge part in how psychopaths, um, specifically serial killers, are profiled. So how might IQ impact the likelihood of being a serial killer? And is this psychopathy due to brain chemistry or external factors? Why are you asking this question, Brayden? It's so sophisticated, man. What's your business? Um, I don't. I don't know. I'm. I've always been uh, largely into um, forensics in general. Uh, that's what I'm studying right now. Um, and so I was just curious. Oh, that's cool. All right, lead on, Ariel. Yeah, so the data would suggest basically that there is no relationship between psychopathy and IQ, meaning that when we look at individuals with psychopathy diagnoses, they show the typical range of IQ that you would see in the general population. So they're not smarter, they're not lower in IQ, they're just normal when it comes to IQ. There are other cognitive factors that they show dysfunctions on, like particular parts of attention that allow them to select information and focus on on certain aspects of information. But in terms of general cognition, like IQ, there's no association. One of the things that you mentioned um, Hmm. relating to serial killers and psychopathy is a common myth that we hear a lot um, when we talk about psychopathy, and that is that serial killers are psychopaths and psychopaths are serial killers. That is a gross overrepresentation of the association. First of all, there really aren't that many serial killers in the world. Uh, How many there, do we there, are, there are a lot on TV. <laughs> yeah. 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 On TV, there's simply millions yeah. of them. And well, also they're, on they're... television, the serial killers are these brilliant, conniving people. Right? Yes, that is Just one representation. One representation of a serial killer. There are plenty of serial killers that <laughs> would <laughs> There are plenty show. of serial killers. Oh, that's good to know. Um, that wouldn't no show. shortage. Yes, that wouldn't show the kind of charm and and conning and cunning behavior that you're describing. Um, And so we really need to be careful because if we think that all serial killers are psychopaths, then we're probably getting an inaccurate sense of what's driving their behavior. Um, Certainly, there are psychopaths who murder and who murder repeatedly and so would fit the um, pattern. This guy's in my way. I'll just kill him and take my hoagie. Sure. That's an extension of, <laughs> okay. of what happened at Wegmans. But wait, yeah. but what about the flip side? So there are some serial killers who are not psychopaths? That's correct. That's so correct. how would you describe their pathology or, the, or the, their motivation? Was that a professional assassin? Yeah, so that would be an example. Yes, a professional oh, assassin. A hero, a hero. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So their job is to kill people. They're not necessarily versatile in their crime, as we mentioned, and they don't necessarily show the developmental antecedents or developmental requirements for psychopathy. Because remember, when we diagnose someone with psychopathy, we trace their behavior all the way back to childhood. So it's not just something that comes out of, of the blue. Um, what motivates them, we don't really have a good sense. And because there's not a huge number of them, it's hard to get a sense of a a systematic pattern. But I think one general message is not everyone who does something that we consider bad or who is an asshole is a psychopath, basically. Even even though colloquially, we often say that. Exactly. Like that person who cut me off in traffic is a sociopath or a psychopath. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Braden, did that answer your question? Uh, literally, not a clear connection between IQ and and psychopathic behavior. 
Yeah, the second part of the question was, uh, is psychopathy due to brain chemistry or external factors? Yeah, so that's a great question. And basically, the answer is both. So Nature and nurture. Okay. Nature and nurture. Um, and so there's certainly some evidence that some of the traits of psychopathy being callous, not expressing emotion, is heritable, that we see it passed down genetically. Um, there is also evidence that individuals with psychopathy um, have early life experiences that might shape how they view the world. So if you are a victim of violence, you are more likely to engage in violent behavior. If you witness violence early in childhood, you are more likely to engage in violent behavior later. So if you are abused, it is more likely. I'm very careful to say more likely because I certainly don't want people to think that everyone who's abused or everyone who sees something violent in their childhood is necessarily going to abuse others or um, engage in violence. So, Braden, you asked about brain chemistry. Uh, what do you mean right. by that? Um, I, the brain, from what I understand, I, I'm not a big um, psychology person, um, but from what I understand, the, the brain has, uh, everyone's brain and everyone's body has different levels of every chemical. Um, and so I was wondering if the, the levels and chemicals in the brain are what are affecting uh, thought processes processes and uh, things like psychopathy? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. Um, We don't have great research right now that is looking at the specific levels of neurotransmitters or certain types of neurotransmitters. These are um, things in the brain that basically communicate information. Um, So with depression, for example, there's been a lot of work that um, is related to dopamine and serotonin. Um, These are neurotransmitters that are important for helping people feel feelings and regulate their emotions and um, their behavior and motivate to do behavior. So in depression, there's been a lot of work focused on these neurotransmitters, and this has led to the development of lots of psychotropic medications to target those neurotransmitters. In psychopathy, we haven't had that same type of of research done, and I think part of the reason is the entire brain of psychopaths seems to be different. And so it probably is unlikely that just one neurotransmitter or one system is going to account for the complexity of their behavior. Okay, is it related to addiction? Sorry, I'm laughing because I literally just was reading my student's paper on the association between um, psychopathy and addiction before, that is funny. before I that came is in this funny. morning. <laughs> I'm charmed. You are, you're so passionate. It's cool. So go ahead. Lead on. Um, so in general, we see that among incarcerated individuals, there are higher rates of substance use disorders or addiction. And in psychopathy, we see that there's certainly a strong association between having a diagnosis of psychopathy and having a substance use disorder, whether that's alcohol or marijuana or cocaine or opioids. So so we see certainly that there are what we call comorbidities, dual diagnoses, psychopathy and these other substance use disorders. Your comorbidities, Corey. Your comorbidities. I, you know, I prefer my mor- my morbidities individualized, but that's <laughs> well, you don't I, get them. You know, in this them. case, you, you, this you, is you not happening. You can't You're always get, get what you want. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but we actually see that the nature of addiction in psychopathy is a little bit different. So, for example, we see that individuals with psychopathy start trying different substances at an earlier age than other individuals who engage in any social behavior. And they don't necessarily show as severe diagnoses as other individuals. So they might have a diagnosis, but in terms of a threshold for severity, they're not as strongly um, 
severe. And and so we tend to conceptualize this in a similar type of way where psychopaths are kind of impulsively just trying what's ever in front of them. They're capitalizing on the mood. They're, you know, doing what they want to do to feel good in that moment or to feel different or to do something in that moment. But it's not necessarily driven by the exact same um, motivations for addiction as other individuals who might engage in, in criminal behavior. Wow. So, Braden, uh, that is a great question or pair of questions. Thank you so much for okay. calling. Uh, carry yeah, on you. with your fascination with forensics. Forensics is what, Corey? Science! Science Rules will be right back. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to Science Rules. I want to bring Nora onto the show. Nora, Nora. To, uh, to, to help us explore this a little bit more. Nora. Where are you calling from and what's your question? Hi, I'm calling from Brooklyn. And my question is, um, I was curious if psychopaths have the ability to create relationships with others, whether that be friendships or even more specifically, um, significant others. Romantic relationships. Well, I think speaking of your crime stories, I think of uh, Bonnie and Clyde, right? right? Yeah. Or or a uh, a caper movie where they everybody's in the the Ocean Fifty Six or whatever they're up to now. So (laughs) yes. Um, So in terms of psychopaths and relationships, one of the diagnostic criterion is that they basically show a lack of a genuine relationship. So they can, on the surface, form what we consider a relationship. They could be in a romantic relationship. They interact with their parents. They have friends. um, But it lacks that kind of genuine engagement, that um, sense that there is some mutual beneficial respect um, and there is some mutually beneficial idea to be gained or earned out of having that relationship. Um, and so we tend to see for psychopathic individuals that they tend that they uh, view relationships as more a means to the end means to, to the end that it is something that is interchangeable. So we see high rates of promiscuous sexual behavior jumping from one partner to the next. They tend to live with romantic partners much faster and more frequent than individuals without psychopathy. And so this is the general characterization. They have relationships, but they kind of of lack this genuine feel. This is not to say that they never can have these relationships. So in a lot of the interviews that I've done, you tend to notice that there's always one person, the kind of special person um, in the psychopath's life that no matter what happens or what they do, they always put this person up on a pedestal. Frequently, this is the mother. I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they will describe 
bending over backwards to help their mother. They will describe really loving, and they'll use this word, really loving their mother. In the same interview, though, they will also describe taking advantage of their mother and lying to their mother and doing all of these things that you would think, um, you know, would contraindicate basically having a a A true, healthy relationship. (laughs) Well, I think about um, uh, the the gangster, the godfather. Yeah. Yeah, Yes, exactly. There's a lot of mother. There's a lot of taking advantage of the mother. Yes. Freud wasn't wrong about everything. The mother is certainly important. So is, then is that a gateway to treatment? Is that sort of like a wedge into some part of their emotional life? Is that? No. 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 So the gateway to treatment, I would say, for individuals with psychopathy is to help them see how engaging in the behaviors they do, taking advantage of a, their others, is actually undermining their goal, is undermining the thing that that they want. If you steal the hoagie, you'll probably go to prison. Exactly. And it's not like psychopaths report that they love prison. You know, they're not looking for a, you know, holiday in stay at the prison, basically. They don't enjoy it. They thrive in the prison. They do very well in the prison. They could adapt to their circumstance. But they don't want to How do you thrive in the prison? You work out, you become You buff. work out, you become friends with the corrections officers, you have more money in your commissary, you get people to beat up the person next to you if they disrespect mm. you in some way, but you're kind of unscathed. So there, there are certain ways to, wow. to do uh, relatively well in, in the prison. So Nora, why do you ask this question? <laughs> um, I don't know. I was just, <laughs> I was just curious. Um, this isn't, you know, this isn't like a Tinder basic... related question, is it? No, I know. It's like, how do you know if you're dating a psychopath? <laughs> All right. So Nora, <laughs> uh, you're just curious because what is it? I mean, every song, every poem, everything humans do is about romantic. Yeah. Involvement. So much in life is about how we relate to other people. Mm-hmm. And also it's, the place where we find joy and enrichment in our own life. So I was curious if psychopaths are, you know, can tap into some of that. And if they can't, it's really too bad, but maybe they don't realize that they can't. So, but yes, they yeah. don't, there, there is often a lack of insight into their own behavior. They don't realize what they're mm-hmm. saying or they're doing, but on the surface, it will look like to the rest of the world that they have loved ones, that they, you know, are in romantic relationships, that they have friends or acquaintances. It's just the quality and nature of those relationships is really different. Thank you so much for your question. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, thank you guys for Nora, taking it. Nora, thank you so much. We have uh, Eduardo on the line. Where are you calling from, Eduardo? Uh, I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. Right And on. my question is, what are, psych- are psychopaths preferred in the corporate environment? I mean, are... are like heads of corporations psychopathic? Is that what you mean? Like, like um, are psychopaths more efficient in the corporate workspace? Yeah, they're very goal-oriented. They I, can see, I can see the motivation of that, that question. Yeah, so this is a um, controversial topic. There is this general topic in psychopathy that asks about the successful versus the unsuccessful psychopath. The unsuccessful psychopaths are typically the ones that I deal with, the ones who end up in prison and get caught for their behavior. The successful psychopath is believed to be someone who shows all the same characteristics and behaviors but essentially doesn't get caught for them. So they might commit crimes or violate social norms, but they're not getting um, 
arrested, charged, and sentenced for their behavior. And part of the motivation for this debate has come out of this very question, the interest in politicians and CEOs and the relationship with with psychopathy. Um, And so I will say that the work is in its infancy, so there's not a ton of research on this. There are some estimates that say about 3% of CEOs would meet some sort of elevation of traits of psychopathy. And I'm careful not to say a diagnosis of psychopathy because they haven't been given the kind of gold standard diagnostic measures that I've described, the psychopathy checklist. And probably they would not particularly enjoy sitting down to take one of those tests, I'm guessing. They'd have one of their people do it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, you know, psychopaths love talking about themselves, so I, they, they might enjoy it. I, I don't know. Um, but one of the things that gets confusing when we focus on CEOs or politicians is we tend to focus mostly on the interpersonal characteristics, so being really grandiose, being superficially charming, being glib. Um, and that overlaps quite a bit with other clinical diagnoses like narcissistic personality disorder. So I'm I'm not sure we know clearly if CEOs are more likely to be psychopathic or more likely to be narcissistic. Um, and I don't think we tend to have a good conceptualization of what antisocial behavior means for them. Does it have to be a crime? Can it just be taking advantage of someone else but not necessarily in a, in a criminal fashion? Um, so I think the likelihood is that there is an exaggeration of the association between being a CEO and psychopathy. And what we're mostly looking at are these kind of narcissistic traits. Again, we see it a lot in pop culture in like, you know, The Wolf of Wall Street or American Psycho. These, That's right. uh, these In these extreme personalities that do very well in the corporate environment. One of the things that we do tend to see is that when we study successful psychopaths, we can't replicate any of the biological bases that we see with the, quote, unsuccessful psychopaths. So even if the behaviors might be similar, again, the causes seem to be quite different. All this – Eduardo, this is a great question. Uh, Did you also have a (laughs) follow-up? No, that was was just my question. All right. So I guess the answer is absolutely without question, it depends. Yes. This is is basically the answer to all psychological uh, questions. Eduardo, thanks for your question. But let me ask you this, Ariel. Yes. It seems to me this whole thing is connected with this notion of empathy. Can you feel, does this person or does any one of us feel what the other person is feeling? And then if you do or you don't, that determines or it seems like that would determine how you respond and how you behave and how you feel. Yeah. So this is a great question. Um can I get dorky science? Oh, dork it oh, up. Okay. You, you, you're you're on, in the you're, land of dorkness. You're on Dorks R Us. I mean, come on. This is, this, is, this is like the warehouse. Great. So empathy has been a general process that a lot of researchers have focused on. And there are two forms of empathy that researchers have evaluated. One is affective empathy. And that's really what you asked about, affective or emotional, feeling the feelings of others. Basically. Yeah, here's I gotta say, I mean, I'm trying to keep up, but there's a lot of nouns and adjectives. I know, I know. So affective empathy is what I was feeling just feeling the feelings of others. Feeling okay, go ahead. Then so what's the if other you're one? crying, I feel something watching you cry, mm-hmm. basically. The other is called cognitive empathy. The term that people may have heard is theory of mind or perspective taking. 
So this is being able to take the perspective of someone else, thinking about the thoughts or feelings of another person. Oh, so, okay. Is it a, re- a, a re- cause and effect? In other words, I watch somebody cry uh, and I cry. I watch somebody cry and I try to figure out why he or she is crying. That's two different things. Two different things, exactly. So the second one is called cognitive empathy. That's right. And so in, the, in research on psychopathy, what we typically see is that individuals with psychopathy show deficits in their abilities to display affective empathy or the emotional empathy. They usually don't feel the feelings of others. Um, and this has been related to the callous behavior that they engage in, being able to take advantage of other people. We usually have seen, though, that psychopathic individuals are capable of cognitive empathy, being able to take the perspective of others or represent the thoughts and feelings of others. So they know what people are thinking. One study that we recently completed at Yale in collaboration um, with Lindsay Drayton and Lori Santos was to try and better understand this concept of cognitive empathy because it seemed weird to us. If psychopathic individuals could understand and think about the thoughts and feelings of others, why would they continually do such nasty and heinous things to Mm. people? And so because psychology is never simple, there are two further distinctions about cognitive empathy. One is called deliberate or controlled cognitive empathy. And this is usually what we assess when we assess cognitive empathy. That is deliberately being asked to take the perspective of someone else. So um, in a lot of the psychological tests we do, there might be a story about a girl named Sally. And you're asked to take the perspective of Sally, for example. That's your job. There's this other part of cognitive empathy called automatic cognitive empathy. And this is something that develops early in infancy. And this is basically having the perspective of others automatically influence your own. So right now, as I'm talking to you, my job is not to deliberately take your perspective, but seeing if you're nodding along with me, if you look confused, might influence what I am doing. Right, exactly that face. (laughs) I made a confused face, or let me rephrase it, more confused face. Um, And so we can test this dissociation by playing a a game, essentially, where we deliberately ask participants to take the perspective of an avatar, or we can have participants take their own perspective, but see if the avatar's perspective influences their own. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm listening. I mean, I'm envisioning an avatar. I'm envisioning myself playing a game. I'm imagining watching other avatars. But what happens? What happens? Sorry. What what we see with with psychopathy is that, much like previous research, they are capable of deliberately taking the perspective of others. So if you tell them to, they can. But they lack this automatic propensity to take the perspective of others. They can do it, but it's not instinctive. That's exactly right. Corey, do you hear that? Bill, is that, is that lightning? Lightning on a podcast? <laughs> yes. Now I've heard everything. It's actually thunder caused by superheating the atmosphere as lightning moves from the cloud to the ground or the ground to the cloud. Ariel, it is time for the lightning round. Are you I'm ready? Excited. Yes. What, in your eyes, uh, is the best depiction of psychopathy on television? The two best are Robert Durst in The Jinx and the ESPN documentary of O.J. Simpson. All right. Wow. Why? Uh, but the, one's fictional 
Oh, no, they're both. They're both no, no, wait, people. they're both real. So that's yeah. why it comes out. Ariel, what is yeah. the most common misconception about psychopathy in your experience? Okay, so the two most common is that they are fearless, that meaning that they can experience fear, and that they're untreatable. Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, what's been the scariest moment uh, in your line of work? I'm guessing it would be in a prison, but maybe not. Yeah, it was in a prison. Um, basically, I was training another staff member. This was when I was in graduate school on doing this psychopathy interview. And he made an assumption about the person's experience, basically, that um, the person that this individual loved the most was the mother of his his children. And in fact, that was not the person he loved the most because she ratted on him to the police. And that's why he ended up in prison. And so this really large guy stood up and slammed his hands on the table and, and lunged forward. And you you jumped back. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but you were scared. I internally felt a lot of fear and then used my good clinical skill to de-escalate and manage there the situation. I, I am impressed. <laughs> clinical skill to de-escalate. What has been uh, your favorite or your most rewarding moment in all this? I think the most rewarding moment has been being able to work with the Department of Correction and think about ways that we can improve the assessment and treatment of individuals who are incarcerated generally and also specifically focusing on psychopathy. That is fantastic. Thank you so this much. This has just been a great discussion. Thank you so much to Dr. Arielle Baskin-Sommers. She is an assistant professor of psychology at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, here in the United States. She specializes in antisocial behavior, and we have had a fantastic discussion. Thank you so a much. Very social discussion, if very I Very social. Yeah. I'm Bill Nye. I'm Corey S. Powell. And remember, when it comes to the psychopathic part of our universe, science, science rules. If you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out. It helps us figure out who's listening and what you want to listen to. And it helps other people learn about the show so that they download it, stream it, and turn it up loud. So uh, thank you. Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell. Our engineer today is Casey Halford, who also mixed and created the original theme music. Special thanks, of course, to Claire Rawlinson. And Chris Bannon is the CCO, the Chief Content Officer of Stitcher where science rules. Stitcher. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.